Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. I say this every every two weeks, uh, 2020 has been an extraordinary year by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but in many ways, it's accelerated all of those trends that a lot of us have been talking about and then had fallen from the headlines. So taking a long-term view, not just the excitement of recent weeks, and there's been so much going on, what should investors be thinking about? The global team at Fidelity spend a lot of time thinking about these issues. And joining me now is Amit Loder, the portfolio manager of the Fidelity Global Fund. Amit joined me a couple of weeks ago for a spectacular conversation that I know many of you really enjoyed. And this one is even more fascinating. Amit, thanks so much for joining me. Emma, thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, talking to you with some trepidation because this is a sequel. <laughs> yes, and it is—it's the big topics, right? We're getting into the uh, the really meaty stuff today. So, can you start by talking to us about the big trends that you feel have come to the fore during COVID? We started on this last time, but you're looking particularly at technology and the impact that it's starting to have. Yeah, uh, so, you know, Jeb. Last time when we talked about, um, I think I ran through some of the big trends that have accelerated, you know, technology, digitization, uh, you know, everyone's kind of seen e-commerce, you know, my dad's comfortable using Zoom, my grandfather is comfortable ordering on uh, online now for groceries, you know, there's been some tremendous change that we've seen. We've talked about health as wealth, which is kind of my way of thinking that the next 10 years are about science, the last 10 years were about technology. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the big one trend that, that I'm really focused on is is that we will be using technology to really solve some of our big problems like climate change and you know that has multiple vectors whether we think of renewables energy agriculture food waste so you know those are things that that are of interest to me but one of the things you know that we uh, tend to do a lot more at fidelity is is literally learning by listening to the companies and the management teams that we speak to on an ongoing basis so a few years back, um, you know, I wrote a note and I talked about personalization and simplification as, as two words which were being repeated in a number of conversations that I was coming around. Uh, and they struck me as being important words, uh, which we were hearing from different companies, different management teams all over the world. And, you know, when you join those dots, we found that each of these led us to some really interesting ideas like Facebook, which gives, you know, each person their personal web page, Google, which, you know, simplifies the web for all of us around, or Amazon, which makes it amazingly simple to buy any product tailored to your needs, which is personalized to your needs. And, you know, probably the best example is Apple, which is, you know, your experience of the iPhone and, and my experience of the iPhone and the iPad is completely different because it is enabled by uh, different technologies, but at the very basic level, it is driven by your apps being very different from the apps that I have on my iPhone. All of these were enabled by the development of you know, 4G technologies and faster computers and the cloud, which enabled any, everyone to share computing resources to enable all these trends of personalization and simplification. So when we fast forward to today, and I've been you know, thinking back on all the conversations that, that I've been having this year with, uh, with managements and companies, two words which have leapt out uh, you know, from my notes to me are, uh, besides personalization and simplification, which, which to me seem important, are collaboration and decentralization. 
Uh, and my thinking is that if we can find companies which are doing something with either of these two words, um, you know, which are enabling any of these areas, these could prove to be very interesting. You know, companies which are personalizing medicine, simplifying finance, enabling better collaboration across supply chains, enabling decentralized management. I think there could be some really interesting ideas here, similar to what we found with, uh, with Facebook and Google and, and Apple and Amazon about you know, seven, eight years back when, when it, you know, they, they were not as big as they are now. So you know, that, is, that is something which is of interest to me, which is kind of my anomaly watch of looking for these words. Um, and these two words are are my new additions to my personalization and simplification index of words that I'm looking for. I love that you're looking for words because some of us, when we're at work, will play bingo with the words. Um, <laughs> but these are not those kinds of words. They're the ones that are having an enormous, enormous impact. It seems fascinating to me when you talk about collaboration and decentralization. They seem almost mutually exclusive, but... They're so critical. Collaboration's been coming up all year, I guess, the challenge of trying to collaborate when we were all sent home. Uh, and obviously you work around the world and you've seen some economies where people were not sent home and they're still continuing to work in fairly normal ways and and somewhere where we were all sent home and no one wants us to come back because they've realised all of their office space is very expensive and there might be a better way to manage things. So can you tell us about what you feel collaboration looks like going forward? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, these are kind of um, half-baked ideas right now because, you know, it's it's always apparent in hindsight that, you know, oh, personalization was such a such a clear concept. But as you're along on the journey, you're, you're still trying to understand that. And I'm on that journey with, with some of these words. But, you know, if I step back and I think, you know, new technologies always face a little bit of resistance, you know, whether you go back to the 19th century and you see the Luddite movement, um, you know, we, we've kind of all struggled with uh, Zoom in our own ways and, and trying to get up to speed with the, these new technologies. Uh, you know, what I think is that, you know, social interactions are such a critical human need but I think how it happens evolves over time. And I think that technology actually, while increasing our independence, also increases our interdependence. So what do I mean by that? I think, you know, if you step back and you think about, you know, the, the entire experience with, with COVID, I, you know, I think there is ways to really divide how, how some countries have done really well and how some countries have struggled with, with you know, all of that coming together. Um, so if you if you think about collaboration, you know, really, I think one of the, the 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 hallmarks of success during this period has been the teamwork, which you know some countries have demonstrated, whereas others have not. If I take it down to a micro level and I talk about uh, companies, you know, every CEO that I talk to is just so impressed with the with the amount of collaboration that they've seen across their companies, uh, where you know people have managed to work well from home. Um, you know, collaborative technologies like Zoom. Zoom, like Slack, like Microsoft Teams, like Atlassian, you know, they've all uh, enabled all of us to work seamlessly and transition from, you know, being in one office to being in, you know, 50 or 100 or, you know, thousands of offices around the world because, you know, our homes have become our, our office. And I think that that to me is, uh, is, is, is pretty important. Um, you know, if you think about what that means from a, a overall perspective, 
uh, again, if you zoom out and you think about history, I think the first industrial revolution was about agriculture. And, you know, we debunked the Malthusian thesis that we will all run out of food because of, you know, the amount of technology that went into, into that, that phase of development. The second industrial uh, revolution was about manufacturing and industrialization and automation. Um, and, you know, that's where we had the Luddite movement. And, you know, these were kind of early ways of how technology just changed basic industries. And I think, you know, we are in that early phase where technologies like collaboration, the Zoom environment are really going to disrupt, uh, you know, what you talked about in terms of office space and, and you know, how we all work. Because to me, the, the wonderful thing about this period has been that so many of us have now felt that we can pretty much work from anywhere and be as productive because, you know, all of these technologies work and they allow us to, to collaborate seamlessly. But this also means that, you know, do we really really need uh, all these high-cost finance jobs to be in London or Sydney. And so I think the service sector, which has not been disrupted so far, is, is really prime for disruption as we progress through, through this period. Uh, and once we get you know, past the cyclical recovery, which will happen, you know, and the revenge shopping, which will happen, and, and the travel and tourism, which will happen once all of us are vaccinated, we'll have to you know, come into a new world, which will, in, to my mind, look very different from, from the world that we've been you know, living in for the past 10 years. Because all of these technologies that existed, but we never knew how we needed to use them. This COVID period has taught us how to use them. And, and to me, that is what, you know, that is why collaboration is so important because it's not only a phenomena of how we collaborate internally in companies, but how then we can use that to collaborate better globally, to how we can, you know, use that to collaborate across supply chains, um, you know, how we can use that to collaborate across countries in terms of development of different vaccines. I think there is, there's a lot in there in that word. Which, which I think we can un unpack over a period of time. That's so fascinating. I love the way you you bring together all those ideas of what we've all been experiencing. There's certainly a lot of people who feel that collaboration sort of needs to be a face-to-face -face experience. Uh, and yet, in many cases, you know, people on the other end are like, no, no, I'm very happy in the suburbs or, you know, near the coast or wherever I may be fortunate enough to live. And, uh, and I don't need to be face to face. I think I told you this story last time we, uh, I rang one of our compliance guys and I said, how are you doing? You know, a few months into COVID, he'd been from home. I hadn't seen him. And he said, it is the introvert's time to shine. Uh, which I felt just right, to be honest with you. So you've mentioned a little bit how decentralization ties into this. I mean, given what we've experienced this year, it's been quite telling how different authorities, um, health authorities, governments and so on have managed COVID because it's been such a complex problem. And some have chosen to be quite authoritarian. It's been quite centralised, the management, and others have obviously taken a far more relaxed approach with very, very different results. Talk to us about how you feel decentralisation is going to work from here. Yeah, you know, it's uh, decentralization is also equally fascinating to me. And it is a concept, you know, I'm, I'm thinking aloud here again. Um, you know, when I look to invest, I look for resilient business models. And if 
COVID has done one thing. It has tested resilience. It has tested, you know, yours and mine resilience in terms of managing through this environment. It has tested the resilience of companies and it has tested the resilience of countries. Um, and, you know, what has struck me is, is that, you know, companies and countries which I would not have expected who would be so resilient have turned out to, to do much better than, than I anticipated. You know, the emerging markets, for example, don't seem like to be the emerging markets of the 1999s or the Asian financial crisis. They've all learned from their past, uh, you know, failures, mistakes, errors, to become a lot more resilient this time around. Um, and, you know, so you know, I was, when I was thinking about that and I was thinking about the fact that, you know, country selection has been very important as we've navigated this environment because, you know, while certain economies have been open for business, others have been closed uh, because of all the restrictions. And what has struck me is that, you know, if I look at companies or countries which have, you know, managed to navigate this period well, they've actually followed a very interesting model, a combination of centralization and decentralization, but with an emphasis on decentralization. So important decisions have been taken at the center, but the implementation has been, you know, fully delegated with a lot of trust to those on the front line. And they've maintained very strong feedback loops. So you have a great combination of technology, teamwork, and trust in leadership. And I can see that in Taiwan. I can see that in New Zealand. And I can see that in Korea. And honestly, I can see that in China. Um, on the other hand, you know, when I, when I see, you know, what's going on in the UK, you see what's going on in the US, you see what's going on in India, uh, you know, some of these uh, countries have tried to, to make all the decisions, as you say, on a very centralized basis with, with a one-size-fits-all approach with no personalization. Uh, and these have been really complex problems. And, you know, COVID in some ways has been a bit like trying to hold, um, you know, grains of sand in your hand while tightening your fist and it doesn't work. Um, and I, you know, I, I see this in in companies also. You know, when uh, you know, I know you know that uh, you know I respect Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan immensely. Uh, and when we spoke to him recently, and I asked him, you know, how J.P. Morgan was, you know, navigating this crisis, he said, you know, I gave my leadership team three simple instructions: take care of your employees, focus on your customers, and do what is required to support and help your governments in whatever you can. You can. That's all I ask from you. And to me, that encapsulates, you know, this, this decentralized leadership that I've been looking for, which is broad purpose, strategy, and vision defined at the top, and then a complete trust in the front line to execute how you think fit. So I think CEOs, when they're thinking about their companies, uh, you know, they're thinking about this unique environment, they're thinking about the fact that, you know, they can probably work with smaller teams, more focused teams. They don't need such a huge layer of, of management to manage people because, you know, people have demonstrated that they are able to work from home, able to self-motivate without, without having, you know, constant supervision. So I think this decentralized working environments to enable resilience, to enable everyone to work more creatively and to work in an independent fashion which works best for them, uh, I think is, is something which is really important. And then again, thinking about the technologies which will enable this empowerment of employees. And as you said, you know, the empowerment of the introverts and to bring really everyone, to give everyone the independence of how they want to work, whether they want to come to work and work in a work environment, in the office, in a social environment, which I think will still be important, or to work, uh, you know, independently at home in a decentralized manner um, are, are, you know, these big issues, which I know the CEOs are really thinking about. They're not only focused on how much office space that we can give up, but they're thinking about their entire 
organizational structure and how they can really refresh the organizational structure to, to be resilient and, and ready for, for the next 10 years. That's so telling. I um I can already think of one example where technology is enabling this uh, because in my business, uh, you get weekly feedback about how you've been using your time based on what you've been using in terms of technology. And they'll say you spent this much time on collaborative work and this much time on focused work. And, you know, maybe if you're spending too much time on collaborative work, you're taking enough time to go and sit and think and stuff like that. It's amazing. It could be used for evil, obviously, but so far it's not been used for evil. It's been um, it's been quite helpful. Can you talk me through sort of the more fascinating technological solutions that you're seeing to support these two trends together? Yeah, I think, you know, technology is, is kind of constantly evolving. And, you know, that's, that's what's so, so interesting about, about investing in that space that you always have to be on top of uh, what's going on. Uh, and it's ever changing. Uh, so you know, a couple of trends there. You know, collaboration software is is already available in Zoom. Uh, you know, it's fascinating to me, as I said, that now my dad prefers Zoom uh, with me rather than you know to do a FaceTime or a WhatsApp call because he finds the quality on Zoom so much better. But you know, more than um, these collaborative software, which I think you know people know well now, and obviously these stocks have done extremely well. I think there's some really interesting trends around uh, blockchain technologies, open source software, uh, which I think we can you know learn a lot from, and we will hear a lot uh, about. So, you know, let's let's try and make it a bit simpler because you know whenever I say blockchain and an open source, you know, 99% of the people tend to start zoning out. Uh, so, you know, the old software process was like writing a 10,000 page software code and you know you needed big companies with you know thousands of engineers at the Microsofts and the Oracles to to do that the new software code is open source and what it basically means is that the code is basically available on the internet free for anyone to download and then add to their own improvements so software engineers today, are now writing code like our children build Lego. They are taking different pieces and creating new structures with Lego-like open source. So, you know, my daughters are nine and five, and I do believe by, that by the time they're working, writing code for them will be like how they play with their Lego bricks today. And, you know, so that's, you've got this entire different modules available for you, which you can pick and choose and then create your own version, your own creative version of software. And that is really what the open source movement, which companies like Elastic and MongoDB are enabling. So this is basically democratizing software code writing, making it really simple. Uh, so you know the, the the natives of of the coming generation who are you know digital natives because you know they grow up with Snap, they grow up playing video games, they know what a VR environment is. You know they will write code very much as simply as as building Lego bricks. Whereas when you know Bill Gates, you know, talks about his development. You know, he was the only student who had a computer and, you know, it was a unique uh, environment for him to, to learn and grow up. And this democratization of software, I think, creates a phenomenal disruption wave where companies are coming to the marketplace 
solving big critical problems, but are homegrown, are, you know, are, are developed by entrepreneurs who are doing this, you know, as a side hustle, and then, you know, finding that this is a really big idea that they're trying to solve for people. And they're able to do it because these Lego bricks are available freely on the internet. But what you build from those Lego bricks is, is unique to you. Is, is that helpful on the open source kind of uh, piece, Jem? Uh, I know these are complex issues, and then I'll, you know, if, if that's helpful, then I'll try and talk a bit about blockchain. That is a perfect explanation. It's fabulous. I've recommended uh, Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, more than once, I think, on anything from Michael Lewis, actually. So, so people listening, anything, if you get stuck for a book, read something from Michael Lewis. But he, um, he wrote flash boys and in that he talks about how software developers had been using open source and they would download their code and take it home at night and stuff and when companies found out they would freak out about it and be like you're stealing corporate secrets and they're like no I got the secrets from someone else and then I gave them to you and you know now I'm uploading my bit to sort of add to the collective knowledge so that was my first introduction to the idea of open source but you've explained it so beautifully now you're going to have to help me with blockchain because that's a different story I don't have any basis at all so can you help us understand? Yeah, but, you know, I think you make a, such a fascinating point that I want to talk about that for a bit because, you know, I was talking to our own uh, chief technology officer and, you know, I was I was chatting about these technologies and he's, you know, he's my best source of learning because he, he uh, you know, he practices this on a daily basis. And he was telling me exactly what you said, um, you know, that our own, that's Fidelity's own pattern of technology buying is changing. You know, previously it was his job to make those big decisions, whether, you know, we needed to buy that uh, multi-million dollar software from Microsoft or Oracle or SAP. And then how we trend to customize it with the likes of, you know, Infosys, Wipro, Accenture to make it right for our needs. And now, you know, we are actually purchasing software like individual Lego bricks at the software engineer level. So, you know, we are making sure that security is okay. But then, you know, their decision making is completely decentralized where an individual software engineer can say that actually this piece of software is something which fits in well with the outcome that I'm trying to achieve. And this combination of Lego bricks is, is really what I need to create the final program and structure. And so now, you know, Fidelity's own buying of software is changing so dramatically because, you know, we're all working in a very collaborative environment, but we're also working in a very decentralized environment. And, you know, we've had to, to run hard and run fast to make sure that, that we can change our ways of buying things, our processes, to fit in with, with how this entire revolution is taking place. And, you know, one of the things which has become very important for us is that we need to to attract good software engineering talent. And, you know, talent only comes through when A, you have other magnets of talent and B, you, you provide this enabling ecosystem where, where they can create their Legos. If you tell them that, you know, you need to work on an SAP installation or something like that, you know, that's not as exciting as, as being able to, to, you know, unleash your own creativity and creating your own solution, which, which some of these technologies now enable. Oh, that's such an excellent point. That's so fascinating. Um, you're absolutely right. The point about talent is really interesting because you want to have the kind of person who can use the software within your business to solve problems. You don't want someone who only knows how to take something off the shelf, not least because we all discover when we take things off the shelf, they're not perfect or not perfect for the, what we're trying to do. So it's, um, it's fascinating that you guys are working on that and that you're changing the way you do things. I 
couldn't tell you uh, how common that is, but it'd be really interesting to see if we get some feedback from listeners about whether or not that's what they're experiencing in their own businesses. Now, can you talk to me about blockchain? Because I'm dying to understand it. So blockchain, uh, you know, the movement is is really interesting. It's been going on for uh, you know for a few years. It is the the technology, you know, if you if you look at it, which enables the decentralized finance infrastructure, which is trying to reimagine the the rails of finance and capitalism. And I think we are very, very, very early innings here. So you know, if if you whether you take a cricket analogy or a baseball analogy, we've not even padded up for the first innings here. So this is all very early stuff, but very simple. Simplistically, you know what the technology allows you allows you to do is that it transfers the trust factor from the machine to from the human to a machine. So you know, trust is a very basic human emotion, and you know, you you know whether you trust someone or you don't trust someone, and you build that over a period of time with with a lot of interactions, and you know, trust takes time to build up, and it's it's very quickly to lose. Uh, blockchain digitizes it. You know, by creating a simple record which cannot be altered. So, so the only advantage of blockchain, you know, if you think about the one use case, there's a number of use cases. But if you think about the one use case, it is creating a system of record which cannot be altered. And this is a very important concept for you know those of us who grew up in the age of Napster and cut and paste on Excel and copy and paste. And you can you know create number of versions of the same uh, same thing. You know you you never really trust computers because you think about viruses and all the rest of it. But now with blockchain, what you have, the leap that you've made is now computers because of code and because of this this uh, you know un, uh, um, unwritable record they can make unbreakable commitments and that is something to me quite extraordinary in terms of the implications of what we're just starting to unravel and bitcoin is really the first iteration of the application of that blockchain technology because basically the the underlying concept is that once a bitcoin is mined and produced only a set number of these bitcoins will ever be produced of 21 million um, and you know the record is unmutable which is unlike um, in in other digital uh, pieces you where you can copy and paste uh, each individual bitcoin is unique because of this underlying block, blockchain technology so so to me the, the the concept that you know when people are thinking about blockchain the things that they need to remember are uh, blockchain is is something which is very simple all it does is that it enables a record which cannot be altered. So, you know, imagine a record which once put into place can never be altered. It stands the test of time, you know, the sands of time can't do anything against it. That is really the, the advantage of something like blockchain. I can think of so many reasons why that would be incredibly risky, mostly because I'm thinking of scenarios where records have been created that weren't correct. Um, isn't that terrible? That's where my mind's gone straight away. Uh, now, you've mentioned Bitcoin, and I'm I'm going to use it as the example because so when you and I spoke about doing this podcast, say a month or six weeks ago, and you sent me some papers you'd written in September, Bitcoin was sort of languishing. We know that it got up to nearly 20,000 US dollars a coin whenever it was, three years ago, and everyone was super excited about Bitcoin. It was the thing. Uh, and we were all told that if we were not on the Bitcoin train, then uh, and train's probably a bit bit old school for Bitcoin, isn't it? But, but you know, if we were not on 
on that journey, then we were going to miss out that it, it was the future. And then it went plummeted pretty much plummeted and then went nowhere for three years and then in the few weeks since we started thinking about doing this it has rocketed back up again so bitcoin suddenly very very topical we're getting heaps of questions about it from investors it's being mentioned in the news again which has not happened for years so talk to us about bitcoin how it's relevant why investors are interested in again perhaps investors are not the correct word and what it offers as a future technology for those who are believers? Yeah, so Gemma, you know, I I came uh, at Bitcoin and um, and this entire crypto movement mostly because of my interest in in blockchain and and the technology. And really, um, you know, uh, as you mentioned, I wrote a long note on on the subject in September. Uh, but you know, really, what I was driving at was my interest was sparked by what I was hearing from China. So, you know, my view in technology for some time has been that innovation is no longer flowing from west to east, but like the sun, it is now moving east to west. So, you know, when I see what Alibaba and Tencent are doing in China, I think, you know, Facebook and Amazon have so much to learn from what they've achieved. So my interest in, in crypto and, uh, you know, blockchain was really sparked by this talk about central bank digital currencies coming out of China. Um, and, you know, you know, China's done some really interesting pilots, and I feel fairly confident that China will use, you know, some of these technologies to create, um, you know, a digital version of the RMB, which will resemble what a Bitcoin is. And, and to me, this is really a seminal change in finance, the likes of which, uh, you know, we haven't really experienced for, for a long period of time. So, so if you divide the question into two, um, you know, to me, uh, blockchain is the underlying technology which has enabled something like Bitcoin to, to come through. And Bitcoin is something which is very interesting uh, as, as an investment that we can talk about separately. But, but my greater interest is, is in the... Is, is in what blockchain tends to be and what it can enable in terms of multiple technologies. So if you take, you know, the iPhone, for example, you know, it came back uh, in 2007, 2008. So it's not that that old a technology. It's, um, you know, it's, it's not even crossed its uh, teenage years yet. Um, and yet, when you look at what the iPhone enabled with the 3G technology, with the 4G technology, you know, we wouldn't have companies like Facebook being so successful, Uber being so successful. You know, Uber's business model relies on the intersection of the iPhone, 4G, and good batteries, because otherwise, you know, that uh, and, and charging stations in your, uh, in your car, because otherwise, uh, all of that would not have worked. So, you know, there is the underlying enabling technology, which is, you know, blockchain. And then there is this amazing amount of other stuff that you can create over, over a period of time, uh, which are different applications of, of that underlying technology. So to me, the interest in all of this was really driven by my interest in central bank digital currencies. Now, if I just spend a, a second or two on, on, on Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin Bitcoin is interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of your investors, I'm sure, are um, are investors in the likes of BHP and Rio, and, and Australia has got such a great mining sector. And to me, Bitcoin has to be approached with the same lens as you would approach a, a mining investment or an investment in gold, where because the unique nature of Bitcoin is that there will be only 21 million Bitcoins ever produced by, by this process of technology and this process of blockchain, 
um, what that means is that this is a, a, a set supply. This supply will never increase. And in a world where you know we are all worried about money printing, and therefore that that is kind of the investment case for gold, where you know gold keeps um, keeps your wealth as a store of value, where where you know money is becoming more free than than average. Uh, Bitcoin offers you similar properties to gold. So you know I'm I'm not a big believer in Bitcoin's other attributes of payments and you know all of those, but I think Bitcoin has a place where you know some people might find it appealing as as a store of value and it is likely to be more appealing for the younger investor who are much more au fait with technology who are much more digitally oriented who can get this concept of you know computers that create unbreakable commitments because they have in fact grown up with that whereas you know those of us who grew up with the early age of of the computer are actually in, in some ways um uh, you know, impacted by our experience of Napster and and copy and paste and viruses and things like that, and you know, technology has obviously moved on from there. So, so to me, Bitcoin has to be analyzed like you would analyze a mining investment, like you would invest a gold investment, and you approach it with the fact that there are only twenty one million bitcoins, and it is in some ways, you know, when when someone asks me, you know, how do you value something like bitcoins, you know, I I, I gave the example that you know when when you and I are walking. Through through a museum, uh, you know, we know that we are we are in the midst of uh, of walking through some really expensive pieces of art, but just because they don't flow in seamlessly into our discounted cash flow models, and we can't do a PE or a price to book or a DCF on on these pieces of art, doesn't mean that they don't have value. It is just that you know, like we can value stocks as streams of cash flow. We've just not found the right way of how to value something which is unique, something which is priceless in a world where a lot of things are becoming commoditized. And, and you know, like gold, like Bitcoin, you know, there is a place for, for stores of value in any diversified portfolio. And so, you know, Bitcoin is, is kind of interesting from that perspective. But again, people have to do a lot more work. You know, there's obviously a lot of uh, speculative interest in that. So, you know, there's there's, there's areas that you have to be be cautious on, but you know there's a fair amount of information on the internet. Some not obviously uh, all kosher, but you can you know you you have to invest time to to do your work, and you know you get returns over a period of time. That's a really interesting summary. I think the the scarcity argument certainly is made by by many many people, uh, and others others do make the the use case for it that it will become a currency in its own right, that it will be used for payments and so on, which I gather you're you're sort of less enthused by as an argument. Certainly, plenty of people uh, they buy the scarcity argument right now. They've bid the price right up, which is very interesting. As a retail, I must admit, I have uh, sorry. I, I must admit, I have changed my mind on this because you know, back uh, you know when uh, in 2016, 2017, when it had its run, I was completely of the view this is a speculative bubble, um, and but it goes back to to some of the interesting things that uh, that Bitcoin has enabled, and the fact that you know this technology has been around for a period of time. I know enough number of people have tried to wreck it. To you know, to try and hack it. Uh, so you know, in some ways, because of the length of time that it has survived, it has demonstrated resilience. Because if it has not been hacked by now, if it has not been dead by now, then we've thrown a lot of computing power to try and hack Bitcoin. And you know, yes, you've you've managed to uh, you know hack the coin exchanges, but you've not ma- managed to really make a change to that 
simple blockchain based algorithm which says that this record can be not be changed so no one's been able to change that basic record and to me that is something you know which is anti fragile which is that you know nasim talib uh, uh, term which is you know if if you come through adversity and you come out stronger that really demonstrates your resilience better than anything else and to me this is the reason why you know i have started to change my mind on bitcoin because you know 2015 2014 you know that resilience was not demonstrated but as we move through this period i think that resilience has been demonstrated and really for bitcoin now i think it's a question of you know the 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 issue is really about trust and you know as the technology lasts longer as we get more comfortable with with the concept of computers who can make unbreakable commitments i think you know that trust factor increases over a period of time and you know we are all obviously you know so burnt by the viruses on our computers over a period of time it will take some time for some of us to to drive that trust but on average i think that trust factor is is building over a period of time and this is also by the way why why the central bank digital currency movement is so interesting is because for the first time i see regulators you know i see the the chinese central bank i see the the swedish central bank the bank of england has so many papers on blockchain on how they can use blockchain to enable so many other things on central bank digital currencies and to me that is what we should really be focusing on yes you can you know get lost in the bitcoin but you know just to give you a simple example this this entire period uh, we've done a lot of income support and if you had a blockchain bitcoin kind of central bank digital currencies you could have really allocated how that digital currency would be utilized so one of the problems whenever you do these income support schemes you know i've seen this in india is that whenever you do an income support scheme the, the things that uh, that do really well are alcohol consumption and gambling because you know people tend to use these for for means not what the government really wants them to do which is you know for food support and groceries and what you can do with digital currencies according to the chinese central bank is you can actually program the use case so the digital currency that you give for income support will only be valid if you are looking to buy a grocery or a food or a necessity or a medical supply so how you can target uh, income support because of digital currencies actually becomes much better and here is again how technology is actually taking us forward in terms of trying to achieve the outcomes that we're trying to achieve It's a really interesting example. Um, I, I think in Australia we we really struggle to get our heads around the fact that in the US they mail out checks to people, like paper based checks. If you try to pay someone with a check in Australia, they just look at you sideways, like what are you doing? Um, so the idea that the government would do it is quite extraordinary. There have been. uh programs in Australia where they have attempted to give certain parts of the community uh like prepaid cards i guess that will only allow them to spend on certain things and uh, and they've been very unwelcome but i imagine a digital currency that has that kind of feel to it obviously in the US they have food stamps and so on this is a far more sophisticated solution to that Yes absolutely and this is just one use case you know there are lots of other use cases but there are also other challenges around data privacy and um, you know data security and how you manage that so you know as as we digitize more and more and you know as we use the internet of things which is really machines collaborating with each other and talking to each other i think you know all these issues around data privacy data security 
uh, and really having an understanding of how these technologies are, are, are enabling things, but also having guardrails around these technologies um, becomes really, really important. So, you know, these are these are some really important challenges, which you know I'm really happy to see that at least the central banks are really ahead of the game in terms of thinking about these impacts and trying to incorporate structures, which which try and give you that balance of trust, uh, you know, support from the central bank, which is really the bank which is in charge of you know really printing the money and yet enabling the future in terms of you know at least embracing the technology and trying to make sure that it's used for the right purposes. Your point about central banks is really interesting. I'm going to ask you about it in a second. I make the point that central banks, um, and I'm only using my Australian experience as an example, but probably the UK as well, you know, they seem like a bunch of really dry old people a lot of the time. And the idea that they would be forward thinking about anything can be quite foreign. Uh, but certainly when I was at university, it was only the best and brightest who got offers from uh, from the central bank. And that was the place to go and work, right? If you were in economics or technology or anything similar, uh, business, you know, you were doing honours or you're doing your PhD, you would love to go and work for the central bank. It gave you so much insight into how things happen. So you imagine if they are attracting talent as per your point about tech people and software engineers, you're trying to attract talent. You are going to attract really bright, forward-thinking young people. And they're the ones who write your papers. It's not the guys on the board. So I'm guessing that might be where some of this has started. Can you talk to us about what the central banks have actually been doing in very layperson's terms? Yeah, so in, in very layperson terms, I think what central banks have been thinking about is, you know, how we can use these technologies to, to enable the, um, the rails of finance for the future. So everyone understands that, you know, we've over time made finance so complicated. It needs to be simplified. You know, there are so many uh, intermediaries on top of intermediaries, which basically increases the, the cost of capital for everyone in the chain. And, you know, for a central bank, you have, you know, two or three simple targets of you know trying to enable more employment or or trying to make sure inflation is under control and just making sure that the economy um, you know the wheels are well greased so that you know growth can continue over a period of time and and you know 2021 looks better than 2020 and 2019 looks better than uh, 2018 and you know so we, we kind of move in a positive direction you know that's pretty much what what a central bank tries to achieve um, and what I found is that you know central bankers have been very abreast of of these latest developments of seeing you know what's uh, what's happening with technology and trying to incorporate that technology in terms of you know using it to create these digital currencies to un, you know use that blockchain movement to really take care of a lot of other problems that we have with paper currencies you, you know you mentioned the check writing system and you know that's so old world it's so expensive uh, it it costs so much you know money itself costs so much in terms of transportation moving it around and and so i think in in some ways central banks are trying to get to what the future looks like and making sure that they are creating the regulation which enables that because without regulation if you're trying to do anything with money, it becomes like the wild, wild west. 
and you don't want the wild wild west which is in some ways how bitcoin has developed it's it's it is in some ways the wild wild west because one of the brilliant things about bitcoin is there's no regulation it was written in code 10 years back and you're still executing on on that code and and central banks are trying to find a wire media where we can use all those enabling technologies but we can also make it fit for purpose for for the world today so that we can you know move seamlessly and not create some massive disruptions over a period of time so one of my other questions was going to be about the risks associated with bitcoin and for many people the dream of the sort of universal currency that was so sort of transparent and and as you say immutable feels a bit corrupted right this is used for money laundering and crime and whenever you hear about people getting scammed bitcoin seems to come up quite frequently uh my personal email address gets absolutely deluged with requests for bitcoin you know or telling me i've got bitcoin in an account somewhere or you know some dodgy thing and so it feels like it's associated with a lot of uh less than ideal activity and what you're saying is that the role of central banks i guess is to contemplate how you create a regulated version of that so that you don't take those risks. Oh absolutely and I think you know in in general I think it's a bigger point around technology where you know in some cases technology moves so fast that regulation is just catching up with it and you know we saw this in the past with um you know if you look at standard oil and what it did to the oil industry you know um regulation needed to catch up with with what standard oil was doing and then we had AT&T and you know the telecom boom and regulation needed to catch up to to really reset that innovation because you know there was one monopoly kind of controlling that entire infrastructure and we saw that with the railroad baron so every time we get a technology leap we always find that regulation takes some time to catch up and i think we will see that in social media we will see that in how we regulate the big technology behemoths and we will see that with bitcoin digital currencies where central banks will use that work to try and create better versions you know the great thing with technology is you never work with version 1 you know i'm on kind of ios 14 now or something like that you know so the technology keeps getting better versions keep on changing we keep getting new and new uh, additions to those modules which make our consumer experience better and that's the great thing about technology so i think central banks are just making sure that that regulatory guardrail is put into place so that everyone knows how they work and you know what are the guardrails and what are the licenses that you need because these all of these need to be tracked they need to be regulated so that we can all have a seamless customer experience i think that remains very very important because ultimately without regulation at the very base level trust is difficult to build at a very uh very low level example i know in australia we had to write these extraordinary papers explaining to self managed super fund trustees that bitcoin actually was going to be taxed if they made a capital gain on it <laughs> it's been quite fun explaining some of that stuff uh so you've raised so many fascinating new areas where things are going to change they've already changed dramatically there are new opportunities opening up all the time as a retail investor how do we look at this and think about what it means i mean the asx the market the most australians 
put most of their money into, and we have terrible home buyers here, is you know is, is not a new world economy. You know, we have big miners and big banks, uh, and you've talked already about banks getting disrupted. So mostly we look for our exciting opportunities offshore. How do investors look at this and try to understand the opportunities that pre- present themselves? Yeah, I think, you know, this is kind of the challenge of, of investing at, at this point of time. Um, you know, I think at a base level, you know, change and the accelerated change that we're seeing um, creates opportunities and also creates dislocations. You know, I think the, the winners of the past are unlikely to be the winners of the future unless they embrace the change and disrupt themselves. You know, Microsoft's a great example of a company which has done exactly that through through great leadership. And, you know, JP Morgan is another example that, that I would cite, which is really focused, companies focused with good leadership who can navigate this environment. And then I think investors need to look at these building blocks because they're constantly evolving. One of the great things is that you can never really completely miss them because if you've missed, you know, version one, there's version two and there's version three. So if you're constantly Constantly on top of these things, you know, there are some really interesting ideas on collaboration technology, um, you know, and I've created some, some amazing things which some of these technologies are enabling in different fields, you know, so whether it's insurance and new startups who, you know, used these Lego-like software blocks to build solutions which are better than incumbents, I think you're going to see it in every sector. It is not only restricted to the technology sector, but it is going to happen in every sector. And as investors, what we need to focus on is management teams who are using that technology in the right way. So, you know, let me give you an example because, you know, it's coming close to my breakfast time. And I've been thinking about this because I met this really interesting startup just just a few days back about climate change and food food waste. So, you know, if you if you look at bread, which is kind of such a basic thing, 44% of the bread baked in London goes waste every day. In fact, you know, every listener sitting at home and thinking about this, in the UK, we waste about 18% of the food that we buy from supermarkets. You know, 70% of the food waste comes from households. And this is all, you know, drivers of climate change because agriculture is such a big, uh, big driver of all the carbon that we release in the atmosphere. So, you know, if you if you think like my mom, it is equivalent to cooking eight meals a day and just binning them. And, and the reason that we we do all of that is the pack sizes. So, you know, if you if you if you buy a loaf of bread, you get between 14 and 18 uh, loaves and, you know, general expiry is three days. So, you know, depending on the family that you have, um, you know, some will use eight loaves, some will use 10, some will use 12, but a certain proportion will always get wasted. And so, you know, if you can use technology to really understand, um, you know, the personalized consumption of me, which is going to be different from, you know, your household, just-in-time delivery, all of these things can be enabled by by the technologies that we've talked about. Um, So, you know, if I look at, you know, some of the companies in my portfolio, Ocado, Amazon, Samsung, are all thinking about these problems from this very micro level of how can we actually collaborate together to make sure that food consumption is reduced? How can we use these technologies that we've talked about, which is you know industrial uh, IoT, uh, the Internet of Things? So basically, your your uh, your uh, refrigerator from Samsung is enabled digitally, so it can see what your bread consumption is. Share that with Amazon. 
uh, or an Ocado, which can create unique packs, which means that they will send you only eight loaves of bread and not the standard 14. And that's the personalization that we've been talking about and the simplification as enablers of change. So, so my feeling is that, you know, when you bring it down to the real micro level, these technologies are so early in their development phase. There is so much to do to solve big problems like climate change, but do it on a very micro level. And I think we've got many areas where we're just scratching the surface in terms of what we've achieved so far. That's such an astonishing example about the bread. And now I'm thinking about then the bit of a loaf on our bench that definitely won't get eaten and I'm going to feel terrible about it. <laughs> it's, um, hopefully someone can solve that problem. My The great example I've got was a bank CEO I spoke to years ago who was very big on innovation. He was always talking about innovation. He said, I'm not asking for anything special. I just want to get a bank statement and a credit card statement in the same envelope rather than getting two different statements a month. And then that problem was solved by allowing people to download their own statements online, right? Um, The problem was solved very quickly indeed with technology. Didn't have to worry about envelopes at all. Yeah, so I I think for for investors, you know, whenever you're talking to companies or you're talking to, you're you're doing the work, uh, you hear all of these uh, big words, but, you know, try and, you know, push and that's what I try and do. I try and push them to give me these very basic examples because, you know, really, Ocado or Amazon are not going to see the the value of all of this coming through um, in their earnings this year or next year or even five years. But these are big problems. And if you're focused on solving those big problems, you know, money and profits and cash flows will follow over a period of time. Amit, this has been such a fascinating chat. The examples you've given are beautiful and very easy to understand. So hopefully everyone is... uh, is thinking about this. I feel like I'm going to be looking back at this in a couple of years going, oh yeah, (laughs) I should have been keeping an eye out for all of these. You produce a wealth of insights. Fidelity has, uh, you've got some amazing stuff you guys work on. Um, I don't know if the papers you sent me are widely available, but how do people keep up to date with your thoughts and what you're working on? Yeah, I think, you know, there is um, obviously a lot of disruption going on. Um, and I, I didn't want to only leave you with the positives. You know, there are, um, you know, there are obviously negatives that that we also need to think about where these disruptions are are changing industries in ways untold. You know, so if you look, if I look at the banking sector, for example, I think, you know, line by line, uh, their PNL is being disrupted. And I think investors need to, to keep that in mind when they're looking at, um, you know, when they're only focused on dividends. I think, you know, that's not the only thing you should be focused on. You should be focused on whether the dividend will grow in the future uh, and whether the companies are future ready and led by good management teams. So, you know, we, we write a fair amount on, on some of these topics. Um, you can find those notes on um, uh, fidelity.com.au, uh, um, but also on, on the web in general. Uh, if you search under my name, we, we my colleagues and I, um, you know, from Australia and really globally, we, we write fairly regularly. And a lot of these perspectives, like the Bitcoin one or the digital currency one, you can find on the Fidelity website. Amit, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Thank you, Gemma. It's been always a pleasure talking to you, and I really love the preparation you put into your questions. So thank you again. 
I'm at Loda from Fidelity International. We're very privileged to have these conversations. Ahmed's in London and hasn't even had his breakfast yet. Uh, and it's Friday night for me. And it's amazing to be able to have these conversations. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. So we love getting your feedback. We love hearing about the questions and the topics you'd like to know more about. Please just email us at yourwealth@nav.com.au if you have any ideas. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.